0: If you think pop-up is a cheap and cheerful way of testing a business idea, then this week's guest, Matt Grex-Smith, might just challenge that notion. Matt is the co-founder of Swingers, the crazy golf club. Their pop-up covered 7,000 square feet and took the best part of half a million pounds of investment. Luckily, their genius combination of crazy golf, cocktails and street food has led to two even bigger and permanent sites in the city and West End of London. And New York is next on the list. But as you'll hear, Matt and his co-founder Jeremy have had several roller coaster do-or-die moments. This includes a slightly anguished conference call discussing whether or not to sign a hefty lease before they'd got planning permission on an 18,000 square foot site. All this from a man who doesn't see himself as an entrepreneur, but is obviously great at grabbing opportunities, particularly in immersive, experiential hospitality. Enjoy the conversation. Matt Greg smith thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Hugely appreciated. Can you just explain, please, to uh, people listening, where on planet Earth are we, please?
1: Uh, we're currently sitting in one of our venues, which is called Swingers. Uh, it's a crazy golf club, and This current location we're in today is our Oxford Circus branch. So if you look out of the window, you can kind of see between the buildings and you can see the comings and goings on Oxford Circus and Topshop and all those massive businesses. And we are tucked just behind uh, selling crazy golf and
0: street food and awesome cocktails to the discerning going out public of London. Amazing, and it's quite surreal because you literally walk off what is a buzzing mental heart of London high street with buses and taxis and all that kind of stuff and then you come up into this completely different space. Can you just describe it a little bit? It's got a kind of nostalgic, I saw uh, vintage moustaches on the stairs and then I saw some funny little boats at the top. Can you just describe the space and what inspired that sort of nostalgic approach, I suppose?
1: Yeah, so, uh, well, I we should probably start from our first venue. So. Um, both of our venues have a 1920s theme but our first location which is in the city uh, of London um, that's based on an English country golf club so it, that's in a basement and you walk down these stairs and you walk into this big double height space and right in front of you we have we built a two story clubhouse uh, and then we have golf courses two nine hole golf, crazy golf courses running around the clubhouse and there's trees and plants and there's a street food area so it's this kind of very, very surprising space. You walk into the venue and you kind of, you're not expecting to find it, especially when you've been walking around right by the gherkin um, and you don't know how quite how to interact with it. And this was our second location. We just wanted to make things a little bit different. And we really like the 1920s stylings and uh, references to yesteryear because golf has lots of heritage, which is nice to draw on. Um, but here we decided to use um, a bit more of a seaside theme and take Crazy Golf back to its sort of seaside route. So um, the building we're in is actually the old BHS uh, flagship store. Um, and that closed down um, probably about four years ago, I think. Um, and this site was empty for a while before getting slightly carved up. So people always think of it as it was a much bigger building than it is, but it's only on two stories. And we took half of the first floor. So there's a retailer now um, on the ground floor. We've taken half of the first floor. And yet yeah, you come up the side street on John Prince's street, walk through this doorway, find your way up the stairs. And then as you walk into this space, this kind of seaside theme is in front of you. And we've got a bandstand bar, all our street food vendors are in beach huts. Um, the courses are inspired by kind of fairgrounds um, and the seaside, and yeah, there is- Lots of lots of touch points with 1920s, the English Riviera, um, not too cheesy, but enough
0: references um, that we can have some fun. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm from the seaside, so I'm laughing because I'm from Bournemouth, and right. literally we've just built a new uh, crazy golf down by the seafront, and uh, we are fulfilling a lot of those those little cliches. Yeah. So uh, it's true, to to and we've got hour. beach huts. You, do, you should come down. You'd feel right at home. You didn't just set it up that way for me to come in today. Then <laughs> no, I thought, wow, it's a little mini Bournemouth. Um, and even though it's a Friday lunchtime today, I opened the doors, and you get hit by this noise and this kind of energy uh, of the place absolutely buzzing down there isn't it that's that's normal any day of the week yeah it's amazing
1: I mean we're open seven days a week and our first site as I said was in the city and people said to us when we opened yeah you'll be really busy Monday to Friday but you won't do anything on weekends we thought well this is the only site we could find and it was right and it was um, you know we had done some due diligence and what transpired was we're quite a destination venue. We do draw from the people immediately living and working nearby, but people do travel a really long way to come to us. I think because you can have a whole evening out under one roof. Um, so in the city, having been told we wouldn't trade on Saturday or Sunday, actually Saturday's our busiest, busiest day of the week. And yeah, the city is really quiet, but you're only five, 10 minutes walk from Shoreditch. So it's not too much of a stretch for people to get there. Um, And likewise, both venues, really busy um, all through the week, Monday through Sunday. Um, And, yeah, it's amazing. You come in on a Monday afternoon or a Tuesday afternoon and there'll be lots of people in the venues. And I'm sometimes surprised, I think. Who are you people? Don't you have jobs to go to? But... So we're really busy throughout the week. Um, people with the corporate groups, they quite often want to come during working hours because they don't want to make their employees stay too late into the okay. evening. Um, maybe people are less likely to come if they have to come off to work. Um, and so, yeah, we it's amazing. That There's always a great atmosphere in the venues and it's great when you show people around because yeah, they're really amazing. shocked by yeah, how much is going
0: on. Yeah, it's got a really, yeah, really, really cool buzz. Um, Was it always crazy golf or did you look at a number of uh, sort of competitive uh, things that could be done, I suppose? Or is this crazy golf idea being something that had been niggling away for a long time?
1: Yeah, well, it was always crazy golf. Um, Mine and my business partner's background um, is very much about events, marketing, branding, that sort of thing. And... We'd finished a kind of a stint um, in a big agency where we'd learnt a lot. But because of our background um, uh, up to that point, we kind of knew about nightlife and we knew about events and experiential. And this was back in 2014. Um, And we could see kind of the way the market was going. Whenever someone was coming to us for a brand orientated event, they would always say, create an experience. You need to bring it to life. We don't just want a boring event, make an experience. Um, And at the time you could go and you could probably do some high-end bowling and you could go and play ping-pong in London but there wasn't a lot else going on and we'd had this idea what if we did crazy golf um, but you could come play in a really cool environment um, and you could have a great burger and we'd bring you cocktails while you were playing. And yeah, we tested the idea on friends and they had this sort of universal reaction of, oh yeah, I'd definitely do that. And we'd been in this advertising world where we were used to pitching ideas to people and sometimes they were good and sometimes they're bad, but you were constantly on the sell trying to get people to buy these ideas. And here we had an idea where people just got it in the first instance. It's got this, it's easy to understand. You know it's gonna be fun. You can see the business case for it as well. So, yeah, Crazy Golf was always the thing for us. And, you know, everyone's got a nostalgic link to Crazy Golf in some way. You know, it's hard to find somebody that hasn't played it at some point in their life. Um, It's not something they're used to playing in a kind of an adult guise, if you say, adult as in with alcohol. Um, And we bring you cocktails while you play, so people get very excited about that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And just as an activity, you don't have to change your shoes. You don't get sweaty when you're playing. You can score a hole in one on your first time you've ever played, all that sort of thing. So it just works um, for so, in
0: so many ways. And so that has always been the bedrock of- yeah. Like so of many of these is. things, I guess it's, it's super simple when you think about it and you explain all of that, you go, yeah, it's a no brainer. You know, I go out and play with the kids sometimes there crazy golf but it is such a, a yeah simple access i suppose definitely having cocktails whilst playing golf with the kids would make it way more uh, way more entertaining <laughs> yeah. and way more lively because it can be uh, can be tedious but that's not a reflection uh, on the golf um, and the name swingers is really cool as well it always makes people have a little chuckle was that a uh, you know from your marketing branding background or was that a um, over a couple of beers it just popped into your head um it was someone we were working with um came up with the
1: idea um and that was right at the beginning and then we it was always Swingers from there on in. There were never any other ideas or iterations. And it's good. It's just a name that no one ever forgets. Um, it's quite cheeky. It's a bit irreverent. Um, so, yeah, it just works perfectly for us. We have a kind of a internal branding document that we use where it's so easy when you're called Swingers to then start going off making lots of other innuendos. And you could very easily end up making jokes about balls and... You know, all these sorts of it could all get a bit carry on. So we have this internal branding document that says we've already made the joke. Okay. It's don't, a of life it. swapping, and swinging a golf club. Yeah. Uh, we've made the joke, so don't keep making it because okay. otherwise it's going to be way too smutty. Yeah, could could become
0: a little bit uh yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit seedy. And then the, you you've put that under the umbrella of the Institute of Competitive Socializing, which is also makes you sound exceptionally grown up, but also a great idea. So uh where did that come from, and is that because have you got other ideas around uh you know? Competitive socializing, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think um, it's a. It's just a very nice, creative name that kind of conjures up. I don't know, all sorts of things, but it gives you a sort of a heritage and a bit of mystery. Um, And at times in just the Swingers Creative, we've kind of played on that. Um, When we first launched with our pop-up, we had um, a guy who was the president of the Institute of Competitive Socialising who um, kind of was on the video explaining what Swingers was. So it's this nice, rich, creative territory to play in. But also, yeah, it gives us quite a lot of... Freedom or the opportunity at least to do other things. And we do have a couple of other concepts up our sleeve that we're developing and we'll roll out at the right
0: time. And so, yeah, as an umbrella brand, it works really nicely for us. And, and I guess historically... Uh there's always been an element, I suppose, of of, of booze and competition, whether that just be uh, watching things, but I'm thinking more of the background of darts and bingo and kind of this historical kind of socialising. Do you think it kind of disappeared and is having a little bit of resurgence and and it's come back in a different way?
1: And that's a good question. I think we, I don't know, we in many ways, we haven't invented anything new in what we're doing. We're just very much focused on finding what the components for a really fun night are and we've sort of dialed them up so you know we've made sure the food is the best you know if you order a burger at swingers one of the best burger you can have the cocktails you know really premium and interesting and varied and then the activity itself um you know we make sure that it we keep changing it and it's fun and it's you have a great time when you're doing it with a group of friends so yeah, I feel like these constituent parts have always been parts of how people socialise. I think probably for a while now, a lot of the focus was on maybe more traditional restaurants and dining concepts and all that sort of thing. And certainly a lot of the feedback we were getting from corporate groups was, uh, we, we don't just want to go out and eat and drink, we're bored of doing that. We always go out for a restaurant, we always go for Christmas, we always just go out for Christmas lunch. And I think there probably wasn't a lot of opportunity to go and do something that involves an activity. So I think when we came along and we neatly stitched the activity and the food and the drink all together and did it in quite a premium way, I think that was what really resonated. So yeah, I I think there are increasingly more opportunities to go out and do a fun activity with food and drink. Um, yeah. It, they probably, probably haven't all been put together in this way before, and
0: uh... yeah, and it's genius stitching it together that way. I think where you're not having to uh, control all elements. I interviewed um, JD from Street Feast, who also yeah. I thought, you know, hats off to him that he retains the kind of bar elements and the drink elements of the business, but brings in these amazing street food artists and or uh, professionals. And uh, as a restaurateur, you know, imagine managing a brigade of chefs myself. You know, the, the amount of work and intensity that goes into the food offering is huge. So I think if you can get somebody in to partner, you get you know, at the best of a few worlds, I suppose. You get people who who really care about their particular product and their particular niche, and and you remove the headache. Was that always part of the initial plan as well? And and was there anything in your experience of your initial business, I guess, where you were organizing events, where you knew how to outsource certain key elements, I suppose?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was interesting having, having the events and then the advertising background, but always being around the kind of bar sort of nightlife space having this idea when we did it kind of uh it was like our experience led to this point in many ways we you know when we needed to talk to alcohol brands we'd been working with alcohol brands and we knew who to call and likewise with various suppliers and you know, just from approaching the pop up, um, which was the starting point, we approached it like one of the events we were used to running. So, yeah, our experience definitely dovetails and led us to this point. And I think we got to that point and were very clear in a lot of ways about what we do know, and also what we didn't know. And we were very clear that we weren't operators, that we needed to bring people into the business that could help us to run the bar side of things. But also the food, and we're not restaurateurs. we wanted to have really great food. And we felt that, you know, traditionally, when you go to a leisure concept, you really had to compromise on the food. It would be um, part of the in-house kind of offer. And it would be an afterthought, And somewhat disappointing, a bit of a bolt-on to everything else that was going on. We didn't want that to be the case, we wanted to elevate it. And that's why we worked with food partners and brought them in. Because, you know, we work with, for instance, patty and bun across both of our sites. And so, like I said before, we want when somebody eats a burger, not for it just to be a good burger, we want it to be a great burger. And that's what happens here. People talk about it in their reviews when they write on TripAdvisor or Google about the experience they've had in it they'll say oh I had one of the best burgers I've ever had and we just don't have the time the energy the experience the resource to be focused on not only delivering a restaurant offer but also making it best in class if you to I me. Mean. so actually this relationship with the food vendors works really well because we get to leverage their brands um, people get really excited that they can come into the venue and under one roof they'll get you know here made of dough pizza patty and bun breados tacos and hackney gelato so they'll you know have different things or maybe something from all of them and so that combined offer um and the quality of the food um it, yeah it's been a complete no-brainer for us mm. and not having to worry about staffing and wastage and margins on the food and all those sorts of things we're in a really lucky position yeah, that awesome. we don't have yeah, to worry yeah. about that yeah
0: and it's a great idea because you're right if I, i'm thinking about uh when I've been temping bowling and stuff like that, and the food is just dire. It's always just such a poor bolt on, and clearly, yeah, they know how to set up a bowling alley, but just, just not even any interest. I don't think in the food and kids' parties and stuff like that. Just, just yeah. utter garbage. I think um, it's an exciting time to be in food because I think we went through this amazing. You know, we had a terrible reputation for food twenty years ago in the UK now we've got a great reputation and we've got great kind of restaurants, but they became expensive and uh, and rents and rates. And now we've got this kind of ripple down into the street food scene and to people specializing in one little niche. But uh, yeah, to bring that into the market of, uh, of competing, we get asked for Christmas parties in the restaurants now. That's what we're focused on yeah, in, in my venues. And definitely people people don't just want to sit down and have a kind of three-course meal. It's got to be about, you know, can we do a, even whether it's a quiz night or a, you know, kind of live band or whatever it needs to be, it needs to be something. But um, it's difficult in a restaurant to, uh, yeah, to come up with something particularly original. So having a purpose-built uh, facility is phenomenal. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, consumers
1: are definitely getting quite sophisticated. Uh, There's a lot of choice out there and consumers know what they want. And so we're lucky that, for instance, when we come to put together our Christmas offer, we try to get as creative as possible. Um, Obviously having the food vendors um, who are providing some of our Christmas dishes, that makes our life a lot easier. So we go to Hackney Gelato and we say, can we have a Christmas ice cream? And they've done this year, you know, it's rum and raisin and fruit infused and it comes with a shortbread crumble over the top. So it's like a mince pie ice cream, basically. And things like that help us to have a really interesting Christmas offer. Um, So, yeah, when you're competing with people who are maybe doing the more traditional turkey, turkey and Brussels sprout lunch and then we're offering crazy golf with some really interesting but festive street food. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice position to be in and we've got lots of levers we
0: can pull to try and uh, make it really appealing. Yeah, amazing. Um, so you've achieved a, a phenomenal amount at a young age and we'll come into a little bit about kind of, you know, what's coming next and the level of investment you've had because this isn't, you know, by, by no means a little business, is it? This is, this is huge and you've got some interesting opportunities. Um, and, and this journey began with your, your partnership, your co-founder Jeremy, I think, is it Jeremy yeah, Simmons? Right. How did you two uh, meet originally? Um, So I was at university in Manchester
1: and Jeremy was at university in Leeds and I'd got into some club promotions, uh, not because I had a particularly massive interest in music and um, kind of getting the masses involved in music, but I think it was just because I've got a bit of a tendency towards organisation and um, a friend of mine, uh, Josh, was running some club nights and he got me involved in it. And... I don't know, it just kind of took off, really. And we did an event for Tiger Tiger in Manchester. And this was in about, must be about 2002, 2003. So Tiger Tiger's probably, I mean, I'm not sure if there are any... I mean, maybe one in London now. There was but, one. Yeah, so was. Most of them have disappeared yeah. now and been subsumed. But back then, it was this really cool brand where they had these venues that were um, massive, sort of two, three, four thousand, 4,000 sorry, twenty, thirty, forty thousand square feet, um, split into lots of rooms. And they were for over 21s. Um, and they were seen as the kind of height of sort of sophistication in the cities they were in. And We were running these student club events and they said to us, could you come and do a Christmas event for us, which we did. It sold out, they were really impressed. It was sort of um, quite a sophisticated student crowd. And they said to us, could you come and do this as a weekly student night? And At first we thought, no, that's absolutely insane, getting 2,000 people a week to come to this venue. Why would you do that? But I don't know, maybe it was being a little bit entrepreneurial and up for a challenge, we said, okay, we'll give it a go. Launched this student night and it was, yeah, it went amazingly. And we, lo and behold, did between 1,500 and 2,000 people a week coming to this student night. So Tiger Tiger very quickly said to us, we want you to expand to other cities. And Leeds was number two on the list. Um, And I needed to Kind of find somebody who could help grow this business. So I was introduced to Jeremy, um, who was doing some club nights with zone over there, um, and he started running the events there. And between us, we grew and grew this business, um, and it sort of saw us past the end of university, um, and we came to London. We set up a small office, and I think at that point we were running about. 25 events a week around the country, um, from sort of Aberdeen in the north to Portsmouth and Bournemouth in the south. Um, yeah, getting in the region of 25,000 students a week coming to our events, paying in the region of five to six pounds to get in um, and putting on DJs and all that sort of thing. And as a result of that, brands started to take a bit of an interest in us because of the way we were marketing to the youth crowds. Um, it was seen as a bit of a dark art brands wanted to reach young people and didn't really know how to do it and we had these uh, teams in every city of brand ambassadors if you like you were talking to their peers and so we started to do more brand events and brand marketing campaigns um helping those um, brands to reach the youth market and eventually we came to the attention of some marketing agencies and um, we ended up getting bought by a big communications group in London called uh, Chime, who uh, owned a whole load of different PR agencies and um, advertising agencies. And we got put into this advertising agency, big London top five agency called VCCP, who are famous for doing all the O2 campaigns. They do the meerkat for compare the market, lots of kind of cool stuff like that. So. Yeah, we'd gone from basically being student promoters to growing this quite big business, which continued, but also suddenly ending up in a massive London ad agency, keeping going with all of the, the, the businesses they just acquired. But then they also said to us, well, you can run events for our clients as well, um, because brand events and experiential was just becoming a bit more of a thing
0: then. Yeah, that's amazing. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, pretty good uni journey. Not everybody comes out of uni with a business like that. What was the, the total time frame then from setting it up until selling it?
1: Uh, so I was at university from about 2000, 2004, and the events got going probably... About 2003, four. Um, And I think
0: we sold it in about 2011, 12. Good good length of time. And then do you and Jeremy bring something different into the business then? Because presumably you ended up working with people all over the country, but it's only you and Jeremy that that stuck together and continued the business. You're a good uh, partnership.
1: Yeah, we've, we've got a great working relationship. We've been working together for, I mean, must be getting on for 20 years now. And yeah, that's, we spent a lot of time together. Um, when we were in the kind of rough hill days, uh, the, our first business was called, um, we kind of didn't really analyse our different areas of expertise. And so we both kind of were, I guess, account managers in some ways, where we both just looked after different kind of ledger clients in different parts of the country and uh, ran it like that. And it's been interesting subsequently as we've gone into swingers because we've much more uh, delineated what we do and really played up to our strengths. So Jeremy's more on the commercial side of things. He looks after property and finance and legal. He's always finding new locations. He supervises the builds of those new locations, works with the contractors to deliver them on time, on budget. And I'm on the other side of things. So if he's commercial, I'm more kind of what we call experience. So uh, marketing, operations, HR, um, and anything to do with kind of what a customer sees or interacts with, so starts from kind of our marketing that might go out across social media or to other places, right through our website and the experience people have there, and then also when they're in the venue and the experience they have um, while
0: they're with us, and also afterwards as well. Yeah, amazing. Exceptionally useful to find people with uh, complementing skills, I think, isn't it? Because all too often in hospitality, it's, uh, it's an industry that has no barriers to entry, I suppose. There's not a traditional kind of academic approach. So all sorts of people uh, fall into it and, uh, and end up trying to do everything. You know, amazing chefs who set up restaurants who are phenomenal at cooking food, but rubbish at, uh, at branding and marketing and the art of being a restaurateur. So yeah, yeah u- useful to have found a, a good combination. Um, did, were you always planning on being self-employed? Do you think that entrepreneurial spirit is something you're born with or something you developed over time? or? I mean, it's really weird.
1: I I kind of, I'm often surprised to find myself, I'm in the position that I'm in now, in these things just happen, really. And I honestly don't know if it's... I mean, it must be because of me and something within me, but I would never think of myself as an entrepreneur and I would previously never have identified any particular entrepreneurial spirit. I don't know, it just... It. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how it happens. I just, we see opportunities and we grab them, I guess. And I I guess that in some ways, the best definition I heard of being an entrepreneur is uh, jumping off a cliff and working out how to swim on the way down. And I guess that is what we do all the time, is we see opportunities and very quickly work out a way to get there. Mm. And that's what happened with the last business and that's what happened with this business. And I guess now as I... As I'm in my late thirties, I'm not sure if anyone's going to employ me again in the future. So, yeah, maybe I am stuck being uh, my own boss for,
0: for the future. I think the earlier you can work out that fundamentally everybody's winging it and nobody knows the answer in life, the better, isn't it? I think the thing is with entrepreneurs is we just work that out faster. Basically, you know, I think at school you're kind of taught that you know, grown-ups know what they're doing and they've worked out their career plan and they've got all the answers. And then you get there and you go, oh, you know, nobody's got any idea what they're doing. Literally, you just work it out oh, as it you go. Yeah, we are winging it all the time. All of the time. And I think the key thing that we did was, A,
1: as I said, we worked out what we were good at and kind of played to our strengths with this business um and so really focused on the things that we enjoy and we can actually do but we're also very very clear about what we can't do and we came into this saying we're not operators we're not um, restaurateurs and these are gaps in our knowledge and gaps in our business and they're gaps that we need to fill in some way and so the food we filled by going and partnering with the restaurant brands and on the operation side of things we had to bring in an amazing experienced COO who could run that side of things for us Mm. so I think it's when you maybe aren't honest with yourself or about what you're good at and what you're not good at, that's when you get into um, difficulties.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's key. I'm laughing because I remember chatting to uh, Michael Bremner, who's a chef down in uh, in Brighton, who won Great British Menu. And he was so obsessed by the food, and, and that was his thing. And he wanted to open a restaurant, and he, he, he got the restaurant open, put all the work into it, and forgot to put a bar in it because he'd just never <laughs> been interested in drink. And it was kind of like, you know, first night. And so, yeah. uh, you know, can I get a beer? And he's like, yeah, that's oh, an awkward shit. realization when you yeah. realize you forgot to put the bar in. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. Um, so when you sold the business, you ended up then staying with it, but Working within it it was bought by an agency is that is that my yeah right, that's right, understanding? right. So, okay and, and then what was the trigger then to go I don't want to do this because presumably that was very different to what you'd done in building up yeah, the business. a business totally you, find, you find yourself in an agency was was there some good learning opportunities there or was it a please let me out
1: um no it was it was a really interesting couple of years we yeah we got taken into this agency and we were effectively running a division of it and so you know we had been running this student events business essentially which was turning over three or four million pounds a year and was doing well but this was being catapulted into a whole different league and there was definitely a load of winging it and kind of pretending we knew what the hell was going on um but we yeah, we learned a huge amount and we always say that, that period of our careers sort of professionalised us. We learned how to pitch, we learned about branding, we learned all about kind of brand communications, which is all hugely valuable. Um, but it was it was definitely a difficult couple of years and we learned that it's very easy for businesses to buy one another and that's that's the easy bit in the process is what you do with that business after and i think the agency we were in they acquired us without fully thinking through what they were going to do with us in the longer term and so we did end up sort of slightly floating um with no particularly clear brief so do you know i wouldn't change it for the world we had Best part of three years there, like I say, we learned a huge amount, got exposed to all sorts of learning experiences that were completely invaluable. But by the time those three years were up, we we were done. We knew we wanted to get back to being entrepreneurial and not necessarily reporting up in quite the same way. And also I just think when you're in advertising, you're selling a service and you're selling time charged by the hour essentially and we just wanted to get back to having a product that's much more easily controlled and defined and perfected Hmm. so you were contractually obliged to stay for the for the three-year period yeah we had we had an earn out um we wanted to
0: stay for and then whilst you were still doing that is that when this idea of what was going to come next was coming and then was there a trigger where you know swingers was the concept and uh if so yeah, what was it
1: yeah it was like I said, we had this amazing bird's eye view of nightlife and the experience sort of economy as it was then. And we had this idea for swingers and we were being told by our friends and family, yeah, it's that's a really good idea. We were yeah, desperate to move on to the next thing, be entrepreneurial again. So as we finished at VCP, we decided to do the pop-up and really is a kind of a side project at this point we weren't thinking swingers is going to be our career for the next however many years we just thought this is a really nice idea let's try this pop-up um we had a location which is this warehouse in shoreditch that was seven thousand square feet doesn't even exist anymore it's underneath where the new amazon headquarters is um we thought let's give it a go we brought in um one of our event partners that we often work with um, a lady called jane to kind of um, build the whole thing, and we we planned for the pop up to only work three days a week. Essentially, be it would trade on Friday, Saturday, and um, Sunday, and the rest of the week it would be closed. And. We raised the money between friends and
0: family. Um, I've got to ask you there because when you say pop up and you raise the money, how much was it? It was the best part, of half a million. Uh, that's not that your average pop up. No. I, I remember reading the words "pop up" and that level of investment in the same sentence and thought, I think I sort of kept a couple of extra O's on there or something. So that's a that's a decent chunk of cash to invest yeah, I mean, in a concept, is not it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it was was essentially an event build across seven thousand square feet that had to last for a period of months. I mean yeah to do anything of any kind of standard and quality it's amazing actually the probably the word pop-up is is misleading. People think these things are really easy to put together, but actually they take as much work, effort, and almost
0: as much money as doing a permanent site. Mm. It's like the word founder always amazes me. I'm like, nobody finds their business. It's really bloody hard craft yeah, yeah, and pop-ups the same. It's kind of like, no, it didn't pop up and I didn't find the business. It's work all the way through. Yeah, but exactly. Then, but you build this, you, you were you were presumably confident that you could get a return, because that's not long really. That level of investment for, for a, you know, a pop-up of a few months, I'd be nervous, were you?
1: Yeah, completely. We had, although we'd been in the world of licensed venues and entertainment, you know, we'd always said for years and years, we're never going to own our own venues. We love the fact that as promoters, you could go in, you could promote events, create this whole experience, but then you got to walk away from it and you weren't left with all the overheads. Um, And suddenly here we were about to open our first kind of location, albeit um, not on a permanent basis but i don't know i don't know what gave us the confidence to do it i think we had enough of an infrastructure of suppliers and contacts and other people who were doing similar things and i guess we there was an element we thought we haven't got anything to lose at this point you know we'd had a really nice ride with our previous business and we were looking to do something afresh so yeah we did it and I mean, it was, what was the bizarre thing about it to start with, was all our planning was, what if nobody knows about this pop-up? And actually all our problems came from the opposite extreme that too many people knew about it. So we launched with a website called The Nudge, um, who, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're a London's uh, kind of editorial listing site, but with a very um, engaged user base, and at the time, I think they had about 15,000 members, but those members relied on them to find out what the newest, coolest things were. And we launched with them. We did a, the opportunity to buy tickets went to Nudge members first. And I remember talking to the guy that runs the Nudge uh, the day before the email went out and him saying, do you have enough bandwidth on your website? Just because, you know, people do get excited when we announce things and I don't want your website to crash. And, I was thinking, all right, let's not get too excited here. It's going to be fine. And so, anyway, this website goes out and it says there is a new pop up coming to Shoreditch where it's called Swingers and you're going to be able to play crazy golf. They'll bring you cocktails while you're playing and you can have patty and bun burgers afterwards. And basically, our website melted. Really? Wow. Uh, And I remember being at home with Jeremy. sitting at my kitchen table almost with our heads in our hands because you know yelling at the website guys like come on you've got to and they say well we've got to move on to a new server so we're going to get it back up but it's not going to happen anytime soon and just being aware that people were trying to give us their money and we weren't able to take it so it was a problem a nice problem some might say but a problem nonetheless um but no we did get the website up and running and we actually sold out really quickly and I think what happened is those 15,000 people had forwarded their, the email they'd been sent to a further 140,000 other people wow. basically everyone got it and sent it to their friends and went oh my god we've got to do this Amazing. but uh, it meant there
0: was a tsunami of interest which was uh, challenging to deal with yeah because then presumably you've got the challenge that they actually rock up and you've got to deal with them was was, was what you built um, very similar to what you've got now it was the same concept it was it was street food it was golf it was cocktails delivered to you whilst you're playing yeah did you basically. learn anything on it that you needed to tweak for the kind of latter models or? I mean
1: it was definitely version 1.0 um, it was all a bit more sort of lightweight less permanent um, you know we the we were in this horrible leaky old warehouse where every now and again a rat would wander through. So it was pretty unsophisticated. So in terms of the concept, it was 7,000 square feet, one golf course, two bars, two street food vendors. And so when we opened our first location in the city, we just dialed it up. We went to 18,000 square feet, two golf courses, five bars and three street food vendors. So. Every, everything we'd done the first time round we kept and was the right thing to do
0: we just wanted to do more of it and on a bigger scale yeah, amazing I guess to have that confidence from, from a little you know test case to, to yeah. show that it worked and I take it demand was sustainable it wasn't one of those ones where there was this, this initial demand and then it fell off I take it it was consistent and you thought right for do the it properly
1: yeah yeah it was ridiculous by the end of the pop-up where we'd been planning to only trade on Thursday, Fridays and Saturdays we were trading right the way through the week And we were taking some serious money over these two bars and this one golf course. So yeah, we actually finished having made a decent profit from it, which we were able to roll forward into our first permanent site. But what was great is it was just a really good business case when we were then going to drinks brands or going to the bank or whatever, we could point at the last five months and we were taking more than some of the, you know, permanent leisure clients, so it just, opened a lot of doors for us and gave us a lot of confidence in the potential of the business. Great
0: great to be able to show them. So um, it's got to be tricky though. You're understandably located in in the heart of the city because that's where all the people are, but you need really bloody big premises. How on earth did you go about finding those first premises? And um, I think there was an issue around, you know, just small things like planning and stuff like that on that journey as well. So can you just talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah, well, we... Yeah, we knew that we needed the best part of 20,000 square feet. And also, to complicate it, we need it in one room. Um, It can't be interconnecting rooms. So this was 2014 going into 2015. And there just wasn't much of that kind of space around. And we obviously instructed property agents. And we really didn't see many sites when we were looking for swinger city it's not like now where there's been a bit of a demise in big box retail and there's a lot bigger footprints to be found but then there was next to nothing and so actually the swingers our swinger city location is the first site that we saw and it's this office building that faces the gherkin um and it's the basement of it and they'd been using it previously as kind of storage space, um, archiving space for the offices above and they'd kind of divided it into their own makeshift version of a big yellow or something like that and they'd suddenly realised the um, kind of commercial potential of this space and were putting it on the open market but it was complex because you know clearly no one had done anything in it before it didn't have, I think it had electricity but it didn't have gas or water uh, had no planning permission, and also it was made up of two leases that kind of needed to be combined. So, I mean, there was so much wrong with it. And also, I think it, it was in the city, and you forget how quickly things change in London, but there weren't a huge amount of ledger businesses in the city at that point. You know, now you've got the Ned and all these sorts of things. Um, but that the city wasn't seen in the in that way back then. But we... We decided to take a punt on it. Other people looked at it and thought, no, this is too, way too complicated. But we were coming from a pop-up. We didn't have a, much of a trading history behind us. Um, we didn't have much in the way of guarantors. And so, to be frank, we didn't have many other options. And so Jeremy, who's more on the property side of things, he was like a, an ex missile. He chased down these planning permissions and these... Um, you know, revised leases and utility companies. And I think we started looking in about, uh, probably about February 2015. And we eventually got on site um, towards the end of 2015. These things always take so much longer than you think they're yep. going to take. But um, builders went on site towards the end of the year um, and we
0: opened in May 2016. Nice. And you pretty much said yes first and then sorted out all the issues afterwards is that right you couldn't have that luxury of going and getting planning and they go oh yeah fine now we'll take it yeah there was a moment when
1: basically we'd got an incredible deal on the lease and the person that owned the lease before us had another option waiting in the wings and yeah at that point we didn't have full funding and we didn't have planning commission but we basically went ahead and signed the lease and I can remember A kind of a slightly anguished conference call where yeah again I was at my kitchen table and I was talking to various other people in different places and we were just sort of weighing up the position we were in and given that there were so few spaces around at that time we thought if we don't do this we don't know when we're gonna find another location when one's gonna come up and you know we might have lost this opportunity altogether so we signed the lease and I would never espouse that as a something that I'd that you should do. Um, I think always do, do your due diligence before you sign a hefty lease. But occasionally in a business journey, there is a moment where it's a bit do or
0: die and we just had to do,
1: and I think, we did. Yeah, I think
0: that's the other thing you know, we talked about um, the everyone's winging it part of being an entrepreneur, but uh, the other, but then I think it's even in the official definition is is risk fundamentally, I think, isn't it? You've got to weigh up the whisk, uh, the whisk, <laughs> that's in the kitchen, uh, the <laughs> risk and, and make the decision. I, When we opened um, one, our restaurant on the seafront that we've got, I had a four page letter from my solicitor uh, telling me not to do it uh, because the lease wasn't ready and it was a council property and stuff. And I was like, look, if we don't build now, we'll miss the season. We either do it or, now or we don't do it for another year. And if we don't do it for another year, exactly, that. somebody else will take the property and it will be gone so
1: and i think the difference is when you're in a position like that it doesn't actually feel like risk because you've got a few, a full overview of everything that's going on and you've assimilated all of the information and so in your case it was a greater risk missing the season so yeah for, for an outsider looking in they or if I was describing what I'd done to my parents or something they would say what are you doing have you gone mad but actually you have processed the information and you've weighed it up and you've decided that in the balance of things it's going to be okay and this is the thing you should do and yeah, maybe you've got a slightly greater appetite for that risk than someone else.
0: But I do think it comes from a place of reason and yeah. logic. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's flippancy. I don't think we do it without that. Normally, it's the investors that have more um, reluctance, I suppose, with risk. And the entrepreneurial frontrunner needs to do it. How much money had you raised at this point to be invested? And did, did you just not tell them that that was the journey you were on? Or was it always uh, fairly open and they were in it with you? I think at the point we signed the lease,
1: we had come out of the pop-up and we'd made our money back and we had a nice chunk of cash and we were rolling forward into the first site. And so at that point, we were signing the lease and we think if we don't get all the permissions and what have you, then we'll lose that money we have today, which is our initial stakes plus our share of the profit. And I think it was split amongst enough people that there was no one person bearing the lion's share of it. It would have been painful not to get that money back, but I think everyone could see the opportunity and people yeah, were more up for seeing where it could go than worrying about their money. Um, but that could have easily been a very different picture if it had been one investor who um, had more on the line
0: than they probably yeah. would have told us yeah, to 100%. get a grip. That's off the chair. We had one recently where we'd, um, we'd already agreed investment. It was it was less. It was about a quarter of a million from, uh, from one investor. And uh, we went into a meeting with licensing about getting a, an alcohol license, which I got alcohol licenses for numerous premises in the past. Just didn't even cross our minds that it would be an issue. And we sat down with them and found out we were in a community impact zone. And fundamentally, there was no chance of us getting a license. And yeah. uh, I, I was reasonably relaxed because I took no chance as being, you know, there's clearly going to need to. We're going to need to put some work into this rather than actually no chance. But the investor who was with me was kind of like, you know, we're going to need to pull out and, and and having a little panic. And I was like, no, it's it's a process. We'll we'll get a license, and then it becomes just start the journey. Luckily, we did. And you phone the police and you find out who are all the objectors and why are they objecting and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think, yeah, so, and yeah, so. often an investor is someone maybe from a finance background
1: and they're Absolutely. used to seeing things in a black and white way and, you know, we like to see shades of grey. hundred percent.
0: Life's a rainbow, without a doubt. And it's, it's in that little, uh, it's in the gaps where the opportunities are. Um, and then you open, uh, or I said you open, you know, you obviously get that one open. Clearly it's successful because you decide to do it again uh, and you've come the other side of town. Uh, what was this building I think you said it was BHS, was it yeah and, and was that again I'm guessing challenging because you were moving into what was predominantly known as a retail space and you want to put in a yes yeah, people kind of you know drinking beer and all that kind of stuff were there objections or was that easy yeah Westminster was definitely
1: difficult for other reasons so yeah as you said we're, and I said before we're in um, effectively 25% of the old BHS flagship by Oxford Circus And, yeah, sadly, um, BHS had closed down um, a few years beforehand. And we got wind of this space, um, which is owned by um, the Abu Dhabi royal family. And we, I think we're the first to look at it. And obviously, with it being first floor space with a relatively small street frontage, there's not many businesses that want to take this kind of um, square footage with that smaller street frontage. But we loved it we had been doing a roaring trade in the city um and then for us coming to the west end felt like a real kind of um symmetry kind of straddling central london and we were completely overbooked in the city so we knew we had this capacity but we knew we wanted to kind of geographically move a a little bit across town so yeah we took on this space and it yeah, it was BHS before. Um, the space we're in was the staff canteen okay. and the customer coffee shop. So I like to think we've made it slightly more exciting. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, when we came to put in our planning application um, and alcohol licensing, it was definitely met with resistance. And you know, I've got to pick my my words carefully so I don't make any enemies. But we were pretty firmly told at the outset. Um, that Oxford Street is a shopping street and uh, retail businesses sort of go along this street and we had to make a fairly impassioned argument about why we would be an asset to the street um, the fact that you know the world is changing shoppers need other amenities as part of their experience whether it's f or entertainment and actually by diversifying the product mix that you find on Oxford Street, it will bring more people in and give them a better experience. So we we had to make some quite strong cases. We had to do some lobbying as well. We had to go and talk to other uh, business owners in the area and explain to them what we were doing and get them on our side. And then from an alcohol perspective, This is probably one of the toughest places in the country to get a new alcohol license issued because obviously you're right on um, the edge of Soho um, and the police, you know, in many ways understandably are stretched by people going out and drinking and they're not overjoyed about the fact that um, there might be lots more people coming having quite a lot to drink and that you were also going to give them each a mini golf club (laughs) uh, a putter so um, again we had to tread very carefully and there was a long process before we opened where you know we didn't know if we were going to get planning permission the way that we wanted to and get an alcohol license in the way we wanted to and you know, I had to go to a the planning committee meeting and sit in the front row and it was incredibly stressful watching these people deliberate and make a decision effectively about the future of the business. but we ended up in the right place and been trading very responsibly ever since and uh yeah, it yeah, was it was worth the stress.
0: Yeah, it's good they can go the way. I've been in those committee meetings and uh, they're sometimes not run by people who particularly understand our industry, I don't think are they? Or, or they just presume that everybody's an idiot and everyone just wants to get shit faced and beat each other up and, and and it's just not true, is it? And particularly I think you know with what you're doing it's about the experience as well is it? it's not like you're just going in there just to get hammered are you you're not just standing at the bar and necking necking jager bombs or whatever it's a completely different experience and i think that the younger people now seem to graze more and it's more about kind of you know quality than just uh, yeah necking back uh, super strong beers and stuff like that but licensing comes from a period where they don't fully appreciate that necessarily. Yeah I think
1: times have changed and you know when you look at the consumers um, that we get swingers um, you know they're coming to play crazy golf they're, you can't have too much attitude. People sometimes are booked quite a long way in advance so they're not going to ruin their experience by getting too drunk. Obviously people do from time to time, drink to excess, especially around Christmas. But it's all very carefully managed, and you know, we're not like a big nightclub that's chucking uh, 600 people out onto the street at 2 a.m. It's a very different model. Yeah, I presume you
0: must stagger their departure times and arrival times, I suppose, because they're booked in for a game. Yeah, it's a constant churn for us. So So that's what they really hate, isn't it, it, is when you shut the doors and everybody leaves. Um, at the same time. Um, Operationally, just to dive in a little bit, so where you've got these multiple um, vendors, multiple um, street food vendors, how do you work that? Have you got, are they all sort of sharing a communal kitchen or have you set up a number of units where they've all got their individual kind of space and do they literally just rent a bit of space from you or is it done on a partnership level? Um, So in terms of the infrastructure,
1: it's pretty well set up. Um, There's big shared facilities in terms of a cold store and a prep kitchen, which they all share. Um, and that works really well. And then they have their own um, individual kitchens, which are kind of in a line you'll see when you walk into a Swingers, um, they're the beach huts um, or in Swingers City, the, uh, the, the um, I don't know what we call them there actually, they're sort of the groundskeeper huts or something like that. But um, yeah, so they will um, prepare and cook the food in their own kind of concession windows, if you like. So, um, they tend to have two or three chefs on at any one time, um, they run a slightly reduced menu from the ones they might do in their restaurants, um, but we've got that pretty distilled down. We know what the Swingers customers are after. Um, and we take um, a commission on their sales um, for them being here, and they pay us a few kind of basic costs in terms of cleaning and utilities and that sort of thing. But actually what it ends up being for the food vendors is a really nice kind of add-on to their business where, you know, for very little effort really, kind of devising the menu, getting set up, um, and sending a few chefs down, um, they actually get to bolt, bolt on a really nice kind of
0: bit of revenue for their business, um, and it works really well. And are you curating that by approaching certain people? Because I, I guess that I'm chatting to JD again in Street Feast is almost an incubator for kind of ideas and food. It gives them an opportunity to come in and try their concepts. Some of them end up opening restaurants or opening other venues. So, in one way, you have the opportunity to, I, I would imagine, be flexible and try new. Concepts, but on yeah. the flip side, like you say, you know what people want and there's a certain amount of curation, I guess. So uh, do you change the offering regularly? And how does that work if you want to change it? Do people approach you or do you approach them?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do really have to curate it because the key thing is you want each of the three food vendors to uh, do a really good trade. And so you can't afford for one to do better than the others or two to do um, better than one, because sooner or later you have a food vendor coming to you saying they're not very happy and they want to leave. So. We've reached quite an interesting point now where we have Patty and Bun doing the burgers in both sites. We have pizza in both locations done by different operators. And we also have um, Bredo's Tacos. And that kind of burger, pizza, taco mix ticks quite a lot of boxes in terms of the burgers are very indulgent and always incredibly popular. Pizzas are great for sharing, and perhaps if you're a less adventurous eater, then you might kind of veer towards the pizza, not saying that uh, pizza is for people with less adventurous tastes, (laughs) just provides an option. Uh, And then the tacos give you that kind of color, a bit more freshness. Um, They're great for some of the um, dietary options. Like if you're gluten-free, then a lot of the taco options are gluten-free. So that's a really nice mix. Um, we do swap the food vendors from time to time. Um, we tend to go to people. We generally have an eye out on who's doing interesting things and will approach them. Um, we tend to talk to what we call up and coming restaurateurs but where they've got maybe one or two of their own bricks and mortar stores just because although the units are relatively small here they'll do quite a high volume and so we want people that just won't be phased by you know getting a slam by maybe four or five hundred orders on a really busy Saturday night. Um, Yeah, and it's been a real learning uh, process. When we started out in the city, we had hoppers um, from Soho come in for a while. And they specialise in Sri Lankan food. Um, And they just got uh, a Michelin bib gourmand. So we were really excited about having them in. And it just transpired through absolutely no fault of their own that people weren't wanting to eat very heavily spiced food when they come to swingers. They were on dates quite a lot, or they were on corporate outings, and they were not looking for those very spiced flavors. And so, as a result, we worked with um, the company behind Hoppers, uh, JKS, who also own Bubble Dogs, and they swapped them out um, and put Bubble Dogs and their hot dogs in for a while. So you're always kind of learning and about what consumers want and you're trying to give them something really tasty and really interesting but also a crowd pleaser as well Um, so yeah we're in a a nice spot at the moment with mm. um, our current mix but it's nice to know we can change it yeah I think do. it's so
0: important because you know in the last few months we've seen the uh, the demise of Jamie Oliver's and you're seeing the contraction of By- By- Byron Burgers Coluccio's Patisserie Valerie all these different companies I suppose where they grow to a certain point and then the consumer moves on and the consumer wants to try something else and uh, I think the Instagram generation of you know kind of wanting the next thing um, I guess that gives you a bit of confidence in the longevity of what you're doing because it gives you you know you can be much more agile and can and can keep up with Uh, consumer trends I guess
1: yeah I mean longevity is something that we get asked about a lot because you know people say oh you're hot right now and you're this crazy golf trend and is it going to last and the food certainly helps us to argue for longevity the fact that we can keep it fresh and we can change it also we point to the activity where we say you know, crazy golf isn't some newly arrived activity that no one's ever played before. It's actually been around for a really long time. Uh, We have bars, which do a great drinks program. We have great service, we have an immersive environment. And we fundamentally give people a lot of fun and a really memorable night out. And as long as we keep doing that, then people will keep coming to us. Mm. Um, So yeah. That's that's definitely something we're used to being asked about. And you don't have to play golf, you can just come in and have some uh, food or drink, can you? Or do you have to have a round of golf as well? No, no, you can walk in. um, And actually it's interesting because we've got our locations in the city and in the West End. And immediately around us, there isn't actually loads of places where you can walk in and just grab a drink and find somewhere to sit down. Um, We tend to find, Uh, in the west end you're immediately surrounded either by pubs or high-end hotel bars Um, so we actually sit in quite a nice spot in the middle Um, and in the city where there's a lot of wine bars around us and maybe not as many options doing cocktails and that sort of thing so yeah we do draw in a really good local crowd who'll come in have some drinks maybe grab themselves a burger or something if they're feeling hungry and then before you know it they
0: might go and check if there's any golf slots available yeah. A bit like a pool table, I suppose. You come in to eat and drink something, then go, oh, sorry, I might as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, might as well have a game Incremental pool. spend. Yeah. So is there, um, is there opportunity to do a lot more of these in the UK, do you think? Is this a, you know, Have you got particular places that you think it would work and wouldn't work, I suppose? There must be a certain number of people you need to justify it. So are you looking at the UK market? Yeah. I mean, we have a list of things that we call
1: kind of the, the tick list of what makes a swinger's city and you know it's lots of different factors on it but corporate density is certainly a big factor um, an after work drinking culture a dating culture um, people not having to drive to get home from work you know where they can have stay and have a few drinks not getting straight in a car um, and so there are definitely cities that meet those criteria around the UK we're this year we're sort of in a period of consolidation we've had you know quite a fast run at things opening two big sites within a couple of years and doing a big funding round um, plus some other plans that we'll come on to in a minute but so we're just sort of trying to pace ourselves um we've got some expansion plan next year abroad um beyond that though yeah our focus will turn back to the uk i think we're very aware that we've got two really big locations in london like I said, sort of straddling central London. And so I think for London we don't wanna rush and chuck anything else out there just yet. I mean we're always looking at locations and options, but you know, we've we're in a really good position and we don't want to rock the boat too much. And likewise for cities outside of London, I think it's just about picking the right time and we're really aware that, you know, you can't just be a brand from London and rock up in Manchester, for example, and expect it to work. You know, Mancunians are rightly cynical about people coming and telling them how to go out. And so we're aware that it will require a lot of time, energy and resource when we do it. And when we so we want to get it right when we do do it. Um, and then it's just a case of slotting it into the timeline. You know, we've got limited resource. Um, so it's a case of just putting in at the right moment but
0: we definitely plan to do that okay um well then that leads nicely onto then yeah so uh you don't know you've you, you've you've set two up in the united kingdom you've got a big old country out there where you could go but the next one is new york am i right in saying is that due next year and how did that come about why why was new york number three well we <laughs> you made, <you're> mentalist <laughs> 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 made life hard for yourself
1: <laughs> uh, yeah it's yeah i definitely have given myself a few sleepless nights with this but I don't know, swingers is such a universal concept. We see people walk through the doors from the age of 18 all the way up to 80 years old. We get, you know, we've had an 80th birthday party come in here and there's something about A, crazy golf and B, the way we've designed swingers that makes it very accessible. It's a little bit cool, but it's not too cool. And that, that universal appeal we really think is gonna work well in other markets outside the UK. And The US is probably the market most similar to the UK. It's got lots of differences, but it's got a huge number of similarities. And whereas in the UK, there's maybe three, four markets that you can instinctively point out that would support swingers. In the US, you can look at it and you can see 15 or 20 markets. So we were just conscious that this was quite a hot, hot space of the market, of the industry. And that if we didn't go to the States at at some point, then probably someone else would take our concept there, only it wouldn't be called Swingers and we wouldn't get any of the money from it. So from fairly early on, we had an eye on the US and uh, both myself and Jeremy have always known New York quite well. So, you know, we looked at a number of cities, but ended up um, meeting a great realtor out there, finding a great location. So... We have a site which is in the basement of the Virgin Hotel um, on 29th and Broadway. The Virgin Hotel is being built at the moment and there's gonna be a 65 story building when it's finished. And it's taking quite a long time to build. It's behind schedule at the moment, um, but yeah, we, will be the building will be delivered to us next year or the basement will be delivered to us um, and then we'll do our fit out and get open. so yeah it's been an interesting ride um, signing the lease mentally getting to grips with the fact that we're going to be operating on both sides of the atlantic as new york has slipped we've also been looking at other u.s cities as well and i'm not in a position to confirm anything yet but it's highly likely that New York won't be our only opening next year in the US. So, yeah, there's, it's going to be a busy year, but we've been preparing for it. We made sure that the decision to go there wasn't about vanity or ego. It's so easy to just sign these things because you think it'll be fun or make you look good, but we think there's great markets there for us to do what we do. Our COO is a New Yorker. Um, he's got a lot of, he's got a 30 year veteran of the hospitality industry um, and he knows both London and uh, the New York scenes. So that gives us kind of a bit of extra weaponry in our arsenal. And yeah, we've ended up with plenty of time to prepare for going there, which is another big help as well. So we're getting all our ducks in a row and with a good concept, a really good location, a good team, i like to think, going back to our conversation about risk, that we've minimized the risks
0: as much as possible. Mm, Usually exciting. Um, is Crazy golf is a thing, presumably, in the US. Is it in the same way that it is here?
1: Uh, they don't use the term crazy golf. They right. would call it mini golf, but mini golf has a kind of very family um, connotation. So we're actually gonna go to the US and we're going to own crazy golf. We're gonna okay. show the people of America that Crazy golf is mini golf with cocktails.
0: Okay, nice. uh, Sounds crazy. Yeah, we're going to create a new genre. Okay. So, but they, they have a similar, so their mini golf still has funny little, I don't know, castles and turrets and spinny things. It's not just a sort of pitch and park kind of concept. Basically. Yeah, they have some novelty stuff and mm. sometimes um, all they
1: do is shrink a golf course really? into miniature format and so yeah. it's very literal. It is literally mini
0: golf. Yeah, amazing, exciting. Um, same investors moving over to the US that you've had in the UK or have you got a whole new uh, you know wealth of US dollars pouring in to help with that? Mm. Uh, so we did
1: an investment round in the second half of last year, which was 2018. Uh, we'd got the West End open. We were able to show that it was trading well. And we knew that we wanted to go to the US um, and open more locations there and uh, here as well. And we knew that needed uh, some investment. So we spoke to, we, we ran a tr- fairly traditional investment round. We spoke to a number of different uh, investors and private equity firms and hospitality companies um and talking through the business and our, where we wanted to go and what we were looking for and i had really randomly been introduced to a us investor i'd gone I would, i'd been in new york and i'd gone to a meeting with a potential food partner and it's so weird how i don't know serendipity works out but i for some reason got the meeting time wrong and ended up getting there quite late and the person i'd been meeting i think was the coo and he'd ended up saying to his other senior management team colleagues oh i'm meeting this guy he's late he runs a crazy golf business in the uk and their curiosity peaked they all came to the meeting so i ended up having to do this kind of impromptu pitch to them but in the process um, they said, oh, this business is really interesting. Um, you should talk to our main investor. Um, this is exactly the sort of thing that he would love. And you kind of, when people say those sorts of things, you think, oh yeah, whatever, like, you know, probably won't come to anything. But lo and behold, um, an email arrived a week or so later, setting up this call, um, and about an hour and a half before I was due on the call, I started to do my research and suddenly realized that this guy that I was talking to there's a massive deal uh, in the U.S. um, There's a guy called Todd Bowley um, who owns a business called Eldridge um, and that has lots of different verticals across publishing, where they own Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter, hospitality, um, media, publishing, all sorts of things. Um, He also owns a stake in the L.A. Dodgers, the baseball team, which is... Quite cool. And um, through their UK subsidiary, which is called Kane International, we got talking. And at the end of the whole process, they were the ones left standing that they wanted to work with us, we wanted to work with them. And they could kind of support our vision of going to the US. And I think, you know, what we were doing was it was quite a ballsy ask going to investors because we had these two locations in London and they were doing really well. And if we'd been going to investors saying, we're going to open in Manchester and Edinburgh next, then it would have been a really, really easy conversation because people go, "Okay, great, you've got proof of concept and we can see exactly how this is going to work. But we were saying, we want to go to the US next. We're not proven in the US. Oh, and by the way, going to New York is really expensive. So we needed a certain type of visionary to uh, give us their money. And through Kane International and uh, Todd Bowley, uh, we met a really good match. And so that deal was finalized in November of last year. Um, So we've been with them for coming up to a year now, and it's been a great partnership. Um, And they're really supportive. They keep pushing us to sign more sites and to expand more. So uh, yeah, they're a great partner to have, and they've got lots of expertise um, to help us along the way.
0: Amazing. That's really exciting. Um, so, apart from money, uh, obviously, we you know we touched on the hassle, I suppose, factor of licensing and all that kind of stuff. Is there anything and. and I've done well getting an hour without mentioning the Brexit world, but, but I'm also conscious that government can do a lot to help industry often, I suppose. So is there anything that, that you think the, uh, the public sector, the government could be doing to, uh, to make your life easier at the moment, either operating in the UK and the impacts of Brexit, or if not, that sort of transatlantic business, if we're going to come out of, uh, out of Europe and start maybe looking more to, towards you know, the US? You've got some experience in that. Any thoughts around the, the political situation?
1: I mean, that is a massive question. I mean, I think, first of all, there's the perception of the nighttime industry um, and the hospitality industry. And I know it's one of Jonathan Downey's big kind (laughs) of... He's um, a great rantor on this subject. Yeah. And he can talk much more eloquently about it than I can. But... Certainly, this space is not recognised for the uh, number of people it employs and the value it brings to the economy. So, um, you know, the government could certainly do a lot more to help position um, the industry. Um, And then there are, yeah, a number of headwinds that I know businesses like ours face. So, whether it's business rates, which are, you know, in some instances, frankly, crazy. When you view when you view the the rate in the context of the business that it's being applied to, Brexit um, is a nightmare. Um, when I remember when the um, Brexit result came out, and I ran um, a report on the nationalities of our staff, and fifty five percent of our staff at the time were um, EU nationals, um, not from the UK. And so there is a huge amount of uncertainty. You know, they are sort of providing loose parameters around um, right to remain and all that sort of thing. But there's so many stories in the press, people don't take much comfort from it. People, We're not getting an influx of um, the nationalities that have traditionally made up our, of the workforce. So yeah, and there's great uncertainty around once Brexit happens, um, our will people still have the same kind of spend that they're spending at the moment? So yeah, that's a big headache for us. And bureaucracy, Um, you know, we touched on it a bit before, but in terms of planning commissions and alcohol licenses and all these sorts of things, and they're really hard to get. And in some respects, Yes, they should be hard to get, people need to be held to account, people need to justify the business they're planning to open, and certainly you shouldn't be able to sell alcohol without being able to prove that you're responsible. But by the same token, we are trying to start interesting businesses that employ a lot of people and provide lots of happiness to the customers that come and experience them. And sometimes it really does feel like a massive slog getting the doors open, and I'd love it if, yeah, if the some of the red tape on some of the, the roads were cleared um, because it can be incredibly stressful and there's long parts of the process where you don't know if you're going to get the business open or not. No, I
0: agree with that 100%. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, bars and restaurants and cafes and leisure space, you know, they're placemaking. They're the reasons that people live places and move places, aren't they? Is that we are, you know, supposed to be on planet Earth to have fun and enjoy ourselves. And, yeah, it feels like there's an awful lot of people trying to get in the way of that sometimes, isn't it? And, and that entrepreneurial spirit and set-up. Which leads probably so. lastly... Um, you end up doing so many different things when you go self-employed and when you set up these businesses. You don't certainly don't set up a business thinking oh, I can't wait to get into a licensing committee meeting and have a debate around it. Um, from from what you've done, you know probably you know setting up the events and drinking in the bars to what you do now. What what do you now find the most rewarding part of your job, which is the bit that still gets you buzzing? I mean. I love my job and I do have to
1: remind myself, you know, being running a business, being a bit entrepreneurial, it's like a roller coaster where there's real highs and the highs are really high and the lows are really low. But I do have to remind myself, you know, this is what I always wanted to do in some way. I get to work in a business that's soon going to be multinational. I get to travel between London and New York. I get to work on a product and a brand that people, are engaged by and excited by and interested in and want to kind of join with us on um, we have a great team we're starting to build a really great staff culture so it's kind of yeah that cumulative effect you you can often be looking way ahead into the future about what you hope the business is going to be in three four five years but i saw a quote on instagram and normally i Take all quotes uh, on Instagram with a complete pinch of salt and uh, ignore them Um, but it said something along the lines of remember when you wanted what you have now Um, which is I think a really good quote that you know we've come a long way and even talking about it with you today you kind of realise how jam packed the last four or five years have been so Yeah, I love the position we're in um, and doing the, the variety and providing amazing
0: experiences for staff and customers and yeah I'm very excited to see where it's going to go next Amazing yeah well thanks for doing it as we were discussing before we started one of my objectives for setting this up was you know I was worried about hospitality becoming beige and the high street becoming dull and boring and formulaic and what you're doing is definitely not dull and boring and formulaic so well done for doing it and uh, yeah I shall definitely be up and and having a game Um, where do people go if they want to follow your journey just because you're crazy and you're going to continue rolling out across the globe Uh, or if they just want to come and you know and and have a drink and a place uh, and a a round of golf where's Uh, the best place to go come to our website www.swingersldn.com okay and this particular social channel is there anywhere where you're more prolific than you are elsewhere Facebook or Instagram
1: Instagram is probably uh, where you'll see most of our video content um, and our handle across all social platforms is at swingersldn
0: perfect okay i will put some uh, some notes as well linking through to your social and the and uh, your website on mm-hmm. our yeah. website so humansofhospitality.co.uk people can go there as well uh, good luck i'm sure we'll be touching base again because under your umbrella of competitive socializing i'll be very surprised if there's not some other great concepts so uh, hopefully we'll have another conversation in the future but Come for today to New York, we'll have a chat there. oh amazing i will thank you for sparing the time much appreciated Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next Monday.